Today, we are going to continue to look at that particular trend that we began discussing last week, and that trend is the trend of homosexuality. What we've been referring to is the gay rights movement or the LGBT movement. Now, what I wanted to do is I wanted to dedicate a little bit more time to this particular subject and give one more week to it because of the direct impact that it has had on the church. Unfortunately, homosexuality, it has infiltrated the church. Churches all over this country, they are accepting the homosexual lifestyle as legitimate. In other words, they're, they're identifying it as conducive to the faith. And it's not just the congregants that are doing so, but we have the leaders of various communities doing this. Pastors, teachers, preachers, rabbis. They are promoting, they are supporting the gay agenda. They are actually living the lifestyle themselves. So in light of this, I've decided that I'm, I'm going to attempt to give you a little deeper perspective on the issue. And I'm going to do this today by showing you a video. It's an interview of a well-known Christian recording artist known as Ray Boltz. How many of you know who Ray Boltz is? Wow, many, many people do. Well, this interview is all about him coming out of the closet and how he struggled for such a long time with some very, very powerful emotions and hiding those feelings from the world, hiding those emotions from his family. I think this video is going to help you understand what people like Ray Boltz actually go through, the emotions they experience, and also the deceptions that are involved. Now, what I've done today is I've actually taken this interview, I've broken it down into three different clips. It's not the entire interview, it's, it's most of it. But I've broken it into three clips, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three clips individually, and after each clip, we will reflect upon what was said. So with that said, are we ready for the first clip? Then in 2004, on December 26th, I was sitting with my family at the kitchen table at my daughter's house, and her husband was there. And I'd been severely depressed, hiding who I was, and uh, just struggling with guilt for feeling this way. And when I realized I wasn't changing, when I realized that what had been promised to me, that everything was going to be new and all this old feelings would be gone, when I realized that didn't happen for me, I thought, there's no way out but to end my life. And uh, I thought I was hiding those feelings from all my family that nobody even knew that I had those kind of thoughts. And my son looked at me and he said, Dad, what's wrong? What's going on with you? And I had always said, well, just praise the Lord. Everything's fine. Uh, and that, that night I decided I was going to be honest for the first time. And I said the words, do you really want to know? And they all said, yeah. And I said, I've somehow found the strength to say I'm gay. Um, it's, it was really ironic. My my family sitting with me at that table. It was the same day that the tsunami hit in the Indian Ocean and swept the lives of hundreds of thousands of people away. And uh, we felt like that night a, a wave. When I uttered some of those words, it was like a wave. A tsunami came in to our family, uh, and and a flood of emotions and feelings. And yet, at the end of that. At the end of that evening, each one of my children and my spouse, they all gather around me and they said, Dad, we love you. We love you just the way you are. And uh, 
all that I was hiding was now out in the open. And uh, it was a moment of authenticity. It was a moment that, that changed all of our lives. And my daughter looked at me and she said, you know, I was afraid to walk into your room because I was afraid that I would find you'd hurt yourself. So in other words, they could see those dark suicidal thoughts that I thought I had hidden from everybody else. Uh, they could see so much more than I thought. Hmm. Very powerful. Very, very emotional. I think you can probably understand now why I wanted to show you this interview. Me simply just trying to convey what he went through, these emotions and struggles that he's going through, through my telling, with all due respect, that would completely fall short rather than you literally hearing it directly from him. You know, if we're going to have any effect or impact at all with people who struggle with this particular sin, especially in the church, I think it's important to appreciate the weightiness of what they are going through. All right? Now, at the beginning of this clip, one of the things that Ray Boltz mentions is that he was sitting with his family at the kitchen table at his daughter's house, and he mentions some things which he was experiencing. And he specifically used two descriptors. I don't know if you caught them. He uses the descriptor of depression and guilt. Now, one thing that you need to understand when you're going to attempt to help somebody, you know, when doctors help someone, treating symptoms is not going to work. It only covers up the problem. You need to understand these descriptors, these feelings, are symptoms. They are not the problem. They are physical manifestations of a spiritual problem. Do you understand? It's very important to identify that. What do you suppose that Ray Boltz was... Why? Why was he feeling guilty? What was making him feel guilty? Well, if you consider the issue at hand, it's not that hard to diagnose. According to Scripture... It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. The thoughts and feelings which Ray Boltz was experiencing were contrary to godly lifestyles, those things that his flesh was desiring. These are contrary to holiness. And because of this, the Holy Spirit was bearing witness of these things. It's only natural to feel guilt when you're embracing something that is, in fact, against God. When you're embracing something that is defined as abominable in the Scriptures. And he doesn't just uh, talk about feeling guilty. The second thing up there is depression. He felt depression. Where do you suppose depression comes from? Why was he feeling depressed? Well, let me let Paul answer this very question. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. Listen to this. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is what produces death. Depression, make no mistake, is caused by the sorrow of the world. It's a symptom which results from the lust of the flesh. From the flesh will put you into depression. It will put you in a tailspin if you are not giving it what it wants. You understand? It will start to feel sorry for itself. It's upset. It's not getting, you're not giving it what it desires. What does the flesh do? It craves sin. It lusts sin. 
This is what it wants. It lusts that which is abominable. And let me tell you something. It is not going to stop until you give in, until you give it what it wants, or until you put your flesh in its place. And you crucify the flesh which, which it, with uh, the passions and desires that it has. Until you crucify the flesh, it is going to try to control you in every way. One of the great tactics or strategies that the flesh will use against us to bring us into submission, listen to me, it's depression. You understand? This is your flesh throwing a temper tantrum. It's simply not getting what it wants, and it wants to sin. Now, Ray Boltz goes on to make the following statement, and I trans, um, transcribed this for you so that you can follow along. He said, When I realized I wasn't changing, when I realized that what had been promised to me, that everything was going to be new, and all these old feelings would be gone, when I realized that didn't happen to me, I felt there was no way out but to end my life. This is one of the most tragic statements you'll ever hear a self-proclaimed Christian make. It's troubling to me. I can feel it. It burdens my heart. There's so much said in this one statement that we have to take in, that we have to learn from. This statement reveals how, uh, literally, uh, how serious problems, uh, um, how serious the problem is that is in the church today. If you think about this, when you look at the statement, we have a problem in the church. The information that is being conveyed to the sheep, people who are coming into the faith, are receiving misinformation. I mean, according to the testimony here, there's some serious misconceptions in regard to the faith, right? We find uh, that the expectations of what to expect when coming into the faith, they're maligned. Notice what he says here. I want to underline this. When I realized that what had been promised to me, that everything was going to be new and all these old feelings would be gone. Now let me tell you something. Either one or two things happened here. Either Ray Boltz, as he's coming into the faith, completely misunderstood the message that was conveyed to him, or the people who conveyed the gospel to him completely misrepresented the situation. They misrepresented the faith. As though when you come in uh, to Christ, you accept him, and you become a new creation, that all of a sudden, poof, magic, I no longer experience temptation. My flesh just stops desiring things. This is what people are being told so often as they're coming into the faith. I mean, this is based on this testimony. And yet, look at what Scripture states. Scripture does state, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Yes, it's true. When you commit your life, you're baptized and saved, you become a new creation. That's not the end of it. This isn't the end of the thought. When we're bringing people into the kingdom, finish the thought. Because just a couple verses later, listen to what Paul says. 6 verse 1. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Yes, it's true we become a new creation in him. Paul is careful to sound out a warning. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. What is he talking about? He's warning them to not walk away from the faith. Why would anyone walk away from the faith? 
They come in, I'm a new creation. Why do I got to worry about accepting the grace of God in vain? Because of your flesh. Your flesh is coming after you. The flesh doesn't stop. Its desires still continue. This I can tell you with certainty. Nowhere will you find anywhere in Scripture that temptations, evil thoughts, fleshly desires, that they will cease to function. When you make your commitment to Yeshua, whoever delivers that kind of message, you understand, run your life because a person understands nothing about the faith. When they deliver that type of message, that all of these things just disappear. Everywhere you look in Scripture, it's just the opposite. Scripture gives us one warning after another, after another. When we commit our lives to Yeshua, we are enlisted into what is known as His army. We become soldiers of the kingdom. And what happens to soldiers that are enlisted? They're sent to war. Right? They're sent to war. This notion that when we become bondservants of Yeshua, that the war is over. I mean, I've heard this song. I don't know if you've heard it. But now that we have Yeshua as Lord and Savior, the war is over. That is total nonsense. Because when you commit your life to Yeshua, the war has just begun. And you will, you, will, you will experience things that you have never experienced. Because you're now in the faith. You are now a soldier of the Messiah Yeshua. If we are true bondservants of Yeshua, walking wisely, giving sound advice, we have to warn those who are coming into the faith that they're going to be persecuted. That there will be war. And there's a reason the writer of Hebrews makes the following statement. Listen to what he says. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Look at that. Exhort one another daily while it's called today. We could be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Every one of us is subject. This is to believers. This is not to unbelievers. The notion that once we come into the faith that all is rainbows and butterflies, it's delusional. We are called to struggle. We are called to have trials. We are called to have tribulations. We're at war. That's the reality of it. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7. And let me ask you, as we go through this, do you see the rainbows and butterflies in this passage? Let me know. Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me. This is Paul. He's a believer expressing this to the Romans. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Verse 23. But I see another law in my members. Warring. Warring. That's what's happening, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
I thank God through Messiah Yeshua our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Powerful dialogue here. Now, look at what he talks about. He's talking about warring in his flesh. Warring. I mean, he is a soldier. I want to be careful here, and I, every time I go through this passage, because of my experience with individuals that I have, for example, sitting down with someone, they express to me that they sin all the time, they're not worried about it because of this very passage that we just read. And I said, well, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? And then she goes, well, with my mind, I serve Christ. But my flesh, it does something completely different. And basically the scenario that the devil made her do it type of thing. Because of that, in in going through this, I want to be careful and make sure that this is all put into context. Because if you take away what Paul just said, if you take away and say, oh, he's saying that when we sin, don't worry about it. It's your flesh. That's the nature of it. Your flesh is given to the law of sin. Just keep with your mind wanting to do the right things. And everything's going to be harmonious. That is not what Paul is stating here. He's expressing to the Romans the reality of the fight that exists. That they will have to go through that he himself goes through. And to prove this, that he is not talking about what I just expressed to you, we continue on to his conclusion and look at what he says. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In other words, those who are not going to be condemned can be defined this way. They are the ones walking according to the Spirit, not catering, not giving in to the flesh. Verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live, uh, but if by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, what is Paul telling each and every one of us? Stand and fight. We have to fight. We cannot accept the, to, or cater to these lusts of the flesh. We have to fight the good fight of faith, as Paul tells Timothy. I want to share with you a story that is really going to bring out, it's, it's, it's going to help you understand what Ray Boltz is going through. A very, very powerful story that shows us how seductive the flesh is, how powerful it is, and how destructive it can be. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 1, this is what we read. And pay very close attention. This is one of the most important stories that I know regarding the flesh you will ever read. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister, whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. For she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. You understand what just happened, what we were just told? Here's Amnon. He is so in love, he is so overcome by emotion, by desire for his sister Tamar, he's actually getting sick. You want to talk about symptoms manifesting themselves, We talk about depression, we talk about guilt, we talk about all these symptoms. You want to talk about uh, symptoms manifesting, he's actually getting physically ill. 
over his yearning, burning desire for his sister Tamar, right? Well, the question is, is why is Amnon getting sick? Because it was improper for him to have her. Interesting. Parallel. The depression that sets in that Ray Bolt starts talking about, he, he has this yearning, burning desire in this homosexual realm, right? He has that, but what, but what, what was preventing him? Well, at the time, it's improper. He kept it all bottled inside. It's the exact same thing going on here, whether homosexual or heterosexual, exact same situation. Here, with Amnon, it was improper. Torah was forbidding it. It's interesting, Torah forbids homosexuality. Torah forbids that a man should have a sister. And we just find this in Leviticus 18.9. I'll put this up here. The nakedness of your uh, sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether at home or elsewhere, their nakedness, you shall not uncover. You also find Leviticus 20, Leviticus 18. These are the sexually immoral laws that are set forth in Torah. All right? Torah simply forbids any action to be taken by Amnon. It wasn't permissible. Tamar is Amnon's sister. Same father, different mother. The act itself is what you would call toeva. It's an abomination. So here is Amnon's dilemma. This is his dilemma. And this story is already beginning to give us some amazing insight into how powerful your flesh is and how it will drive you and drive you insane. It may even make you sick because what you yearn for Now, we continue on in the story, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, Yonadab in the Hebrew, the son of Shemiah, or Shemiah, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. Pay attention to the story. This is amazing. Here comes Jonadab on the scene, and it's it's explicit that he was a very crafty man. And he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? fascinating, Amnon was keeping this inside. And yet these physical emotions that he was experiencing could be seen by those outside, though they couldn't define it. Exactly what Ray Boltz was talking about with his own family. I'm worried about you, Dad, that I would walk in the room and find you'd done something bad to yourself because they could tell something was going on. Exact same situation happening here. Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him. Then he opens up exactly what Ray Boltz did to his family. This flood opens up. I love Tamar, my brother, uh, Absalom's sister. He opens up. Here it comes. This is the confession. But what happens now? We continue on to verse 5. So Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So here Amnon, he sits with this struggle and sorrow of heart over his desire for his sister Tamar, which is forbidden. And what happens? Oh, what a coincidence. Then all of a sudden, there comes in Jonadab with some counsel as how to handle this problem. It's interesting. Is the counsel to run to God? Is Jonadab's counsel to fast and pray and that he would pray with him and encourage him to walk in righteousness? No. 
The council is to embrace his desire to make it happen. The council is a scheme set up to trap Tamar so that he can embrace the lust of his flesh. And ultimately, what does that do? It solves these symptoms. It covers these symptomatic problems that he's experiencing so that he doesn't have to experience them anymore. It's fascinating. And when a person is told what they want to hear, I promise you, they can justify about anything when we're told what we want to hear. Unfortunately, we find in this story that Amnon succumbs to this godless counsel. We go on in verse 6. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. He's following Jonadab's advice. And David sent uh, home to Tamar, or, and David sent home to Tamar, saying, "Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him." Verse eight. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, "Have everyone go out for me," and they all went out from him. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she has made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now, when she had brought them uh, to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister, forbidden in Torah. And she answered him and said, no, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not uh, withhold me from you. It's interesting, Tamar's approach, she just wants to get the king involved, knowing what he would do, that David would stand for Torah. We go on to verse 14. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Ammon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. You have to understand, this story isn't in Scripture to tell you about a story. There are spiritual implications in this story. It has so much to offer us, so much to impart to us regarding just how powerful and seductive our flesh is. And also the ramifications for embracing the lust of the flesh. Because if you actually read on in the story, Amnon is killed. He is killed because of what he had done. You know, this serves as an incredible warning for every one of us. If only Ray Bolts had read the story. If only he had been told as he came into the faith that he would have to war with the flesh, maybe things would have played out differently in life for him. If he had people surrounding him, encouraging him, him, praying and fasting with him. Let me tell you something. Do not underestimate the power of the scriptures. Don't underestimate the power of these stories like this. Stories like these change lives. And when we have them in our heart and we go to people and express these stories, they change lives. There's power. There's spirit. The spirit of God is behind this. You think about what we're dealing with, what we're wielding. This is the sword of the living God, right? It's the sword of the Spirit. 
It's the word of God. All right. So we find the moral of the story is that we have to fight. We have to fight our overwhelming urges no matter how intense they are. No matter how bad our symptoms get, the more the flesh tries to control you, the more you need to press into the Lord. If your flesh wants to give you problems, then just keep taking from it. You want to give me these problems? You want to cause depression? That's fine. I'm going to fast. I'm going to withhold food from you. Get tough with your flesh. Stop letting it control you. The notion that once we confess Yeshua as Lord, that all our problems, feelings, sorrows, and fleshly desires simply vanish into thin air, as I've said, don't buy into it. That is fiction. Don't convey that message to anyone coming into the faith. When you commit your life to Yeshua, that's when things get crazy. I can tell you that from my own life. With not just the crazy spiritual dreams that have been given to me, life in general gets really nuts when you commit your life to Yeshua. You give everything to Him. Because we're at war. And war is crazy. War is crazy. We're called to battle. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Let me ask you something. If the war is over, why am I supposed to put on armor? Only people going to war put armor on. Because the war has just been done. It's, you've been called to it. You've been enlisted through your faith. Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Think about that. We need this armor. If you want a chance to stand against the evil one, you don't have a chance unless you do what God tells you to do. Unless you receive his instructions, only he is strong enough to cast light on the seduction, on the deception that began with Eve. She didn't see it. If she knew she was going to die, she would have never done it. She would have never been seduced. This is what the armor does for us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. Understand, you are not going to fight this war in your flesh. You are going to die. You approach this from your flesh, you will die. You will perish in your flesh. He goes on in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, be watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That says it up in a nutshell. That's it right there. This is what we have to do. Peter sends us this warning. Beloved, I beg you. He is begging as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter understood we're at war wasn't just Paul. Peter understands the concept very well. The flesh is lusting after us. It wants to kill us. 2 Timothy 2.4 No one engaged in warfare, there's that war again, because we're at war, 
No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. We are soldiers under command, under the command of General Yeshua. And also, if anyone comp- uh, competes in athletics, now listen to this statement, very important, and part of being a soldier and part of warring, and he adds this, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. If you love me, keep my commandments. We have to run the race lawfully. We have to keep his commandments. We have to compete according to the rules, or we are going to be disqualified. These are the passages that we have to share with our brothers and sisters who are struggling with homosexual thoughts or have embraced the lifestyle itself. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Mashiach. This is what we're called to do. This is what Ray Boltz was called to do. But unfortunately, he did not. He didn't understand what was happening to him. And because of this, he was deceived. And he totally consumed He was being consumed by his flesh. The people that surrounded him, such as his family that we know that came to him, expressed their love for him as they should. That is the time to bear the responsibility of the kingdom and help him overcome it, not condone it. Play clip two. That began a journey of me being honest. And a few years later, in 2008, I did an interview with the Washington Blade newspaper, which is a large LGBT paper in Washington, D.C. And I had been invited to sing one of my new songs at their church. Uh, And the Blade contacted me and said, we're not saying you're gay, and we're not saying you're not gay, but why did a Christian artist like you sing at the MCC church? Uh, A a known church that's, that's definitely gay and gay accepting. And I thought that, well, this is the time to be honest with not only my family, this is the time to be honest with the nation. And uh, I did an interview that came out September 8th, 2008, and uh, received thousands of emails, and uh, it shut. They had so much response. It was the most read story in the history of the Blade, um, because all these people were going to read it, and... uh, Unfortunately, the reception of my family was not indicative of what was going to happen with the nation because uh, thousands and thousands of people wrote uh, some really, really mean things. You know, that you disgust me, uh, your music, I've always hated it, um, you should buy a gun and shoot yourself. So finally, when I'm not feeling dark and more like I want to commit suicide, I've got people sending me emails telling me that I should shoot myself. What you just saw goes back to what I said last week and the reality of what a tragedy. These people contacting, these supposed pseudo-Christians contacting Ray Boltz, I mean literally telling him to buy a gun and shoot himself that he's disgusting. The only thing disgusting here is the fact that they did that. It's an embarrassment to the faith. It's a total embarrassment. What they should have done is what I already mentioned. 
Can I sit down and have coffee with you? Can I, can I exchange emails with you? Can I call you to encourage you to overcome the flesh? Because, Mr. Boltz, if you continue down this path, it will cost you your life. I want to love you. I have, I have respect for your music. Whatever. Go on dialoguing. Open that up. Sending letters of hatred. And it, it's, it's absolutely a total failure of the faith. And it troubles me. You know, when a person comes out of the closet and that sin is exposed, we're supposed to be confessing our sins to one another. Correct? When that happens, that is critical mass for you and that person. That is that critical mass. That is the point in time where you run in and you help them, giving them godly counsel. Not Jonadab's counsel. Don't cater. Don't put your arm around and say, oh, it's totally fine. We accept you just the way you are. God forbid those words would come out of our mouths. But rather help them move in love. Anything less than that is not love, it's hatred, right? We're to deliver the love in truth, amen? Let's look at the last clip. I remember when I did the article, the, the interview in the Washington Blade, uh, I made a statement that uh, I didn't believe that God hated me anymore. And somebody asked me, I don't know how long ago it was, they asked me, you know, how, how are you doing spiritually? And to be honest with you, what I, what I said to them, I would say right now, is that I don't hate myself anymore. Not only do I not think that God hates me, I don't, I don't hate myself. I just believe that I am living the life that God created me to live. And uh, I've come to accept that if He doesn't hate me, how can I hate myself? And even when the messages are negative or painful, I try to keep that in mind because um, when I look at the life of Jesus, I, I, I see him always accepting people for just who they are. Uh, the woman at the well, the a prostitute, some people say, a person that no, a Samaritan, a person nobody wanted to talk to. Jesus accepted her. The, uh, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, uh, Jesus accepted her. He ate with tax collectors. Jesus is an accepting and a loving person. The only people I've seen him judge in the scriptures were the religious people who thought they had it all together and tried to control everybody with their power and with money and prestige. Uh, Jesus compared them to sepulchers and, and uh, tombs full of vipers or snakes and you know evil things. And that's seems to be who he was the most upset with. What you just watched there is pretty common so that you understand, and this was a very important clip to play, so that you know the mindset of these churches that are LGBT friendly. These LGBT friendly churches, this is the type of diatribe that you're going to hear. Exactly what he said. It's very common. Now, I want to put up some of what he said on the screen for you. I want you to follow along here. I don't hate myself. This is what he said. I don't hate myself anymore. Not only do I not think that God hates me, I don't hate myself. I just believe I am living the life that God created me to live. And I've come to accept that if he doesn't hate me, how can I hate myself? You have to ask the question. This is about being prepared. You have to ask the question, 
What was it that he previously hated? Right? Think about it. Did he really hate himself or did he hate the fact that he was being prevented, he was not acting upon those fleshly desires? What do you think it was? It's interesting that after uh, he embraces homosexuality, after he embraces the lust of the flesh, this is what he says. I'll underline it. I've come to accept that if he doesn't hate me, how can I hate myself? Obviously, this is after the fact he embraces homosexuality. It's fascinating to me. Now, all of a sudden, after embracing it, he now realizes that God loves him and, 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 and he loves himself. This is amazing to me. I have to say this. While it's true that Yeshua, it, it, there's no question, God is love. It's the very definition of God. Yeshua is love. There's something that is not being said here. There's something, there's a disconnect here. And that is, is that Yeshua is holy and just. He is a just king. And we forget scripture. Powerful scriptures like the following. Psalms 5.4 For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. And sane in the Hebrew means exactly that. He hates. He hates the workers of iniquity. We cannot deceive ourselves into believing anything but the fact that God hates sin. It's in complete opposition to who he is. He despises it. And we should never be lulled into thinking that God loves the fact that we are sinning, such as the sin of homosexuality or any other sin for that matter. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but in the last clip here, towards the end, he mentions the fact that, well, Yeshua is accepting a loving God. He is accepting, he was accepting of the woman at the well. He's referring to the Samaritan woman, which Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. He was accepting of her. He was accepting of the woman caught in adultery. Make no mistake, Yeshua did not accept them or accept their sins. He forgave them. You need to make the distinction here. He was willing to forgive their sins. And what did he tell the woman who was in adultery? Go and sin no more. Right? So he is not accepting of homosexuality. He does not accept that. He does not accept sin. He forgives it. And the expectation is, is that grace that has been imparted to you, you will receive that grace and you will walk accordingly. Look at this, Titus 2.11. talks about the grace of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What was this referring to? Yeshua. He is the grace of God. You want to define what grace is? Simply say the name Yeshua Jesus. That is the grace of God, all right? But what does this grace teach us? He tells us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is amazing. You need to go home and you need to read this passage because what it just told us is that those who understand what the grace of God really is, they will do these things. The people that know what grace is, biblically, they will look like this. These are descriptors. They will deny ungodliness. They will deny uh, worldly lust. They will live soberly. They will walk righteously. They will be godly. Anyone who understands what the grace of God 
will be defined this way. Now, I want to end today's message by showing you just how corrupt things have gotten regarding the church, the theology that's being injected to the church. There was a, uh, this week, uh, one of my wife's friends sent over um, uh, an email. She came across a book because of the message that I did last week. She came across a book. Uh, she was on the Goodreads. And the book is called The Gay Faith. And so my wife forwarded me to this. It was the summation of the book was posted. The author describing uh, bits and pieces of the book and all that. And I read it. And I got my feathers ruffled. So bad that I have to show you what I read. But it was a perfect scenario. I say a perfect scenario because I was going to talk about some of the things that are in here apart from this. But this solved my problem. This made it a lot easier for me. So what I want to do is I want to read to you a portion of this, this book to give you some perspective. And you're going to see why exactly men like Ray Bolts, rather than turning back, repenting, embracing those feelings of shame and guilt, they simply move on. They move on to a different church, embracing their fleshly desires. And uh, one thing I want to state before we get into this, you need to understand, make no mistake, people like this author of this book, M.W. Sphero, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are enemies of the faith. And they're, they're enemies number one. They are destroying the faith. They are in our realm. It's one thing to talk about the world and all the sins that are happening with the secular people. It's another thing to come into our camp and start doing this. So here's what I want to share with you first. What does the Bible really say about homosexuality? The answer may very well surprise you. Did you know the Old Testament does not prohibit homosexuality as we see it today? Don't believe it? The Torah never forbids homosexuality when examining original language and historical context. The Hebrew word toeva does not in fact mean abomination but rather ritualistic uncleanness. Really? It makes you wonder if Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are real too. This is what bothers me. When I, this, is what re, this is what caught my eye right away. This is what ruffled my feathers, is when I see point-blank statements made that are an absolute lie. This is an absolute lie. Let me show you what toeva means. I'll take you. Properly something disgusting and abhorrence, especially idolatry, or an idol, abominable, or abomination. Go look it up yourself. You'll find this word is used a hundred plus times in Scripture, and every single time it is translated or understood as abomination. Every single time. I'm not making this up. It's in Scripture. And I read it in the Hebrew. This is the very term that's used. Now, you, 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 may, you may liberally say, well, it could include ritualistic uncleanliness as a subtopic, as being everything under this toeva is abominable, may you want to liberally include, well, that could be also ritualistic uncleanness. Maybe that's very liberal, but that's not the very Hebrew word that Scripture uses to describe ritualistic uncleanness. So let's do our little Hebrew lesson here. I'm going to show you the word that over, over, and over again is used for ritualistic uncleanness. It is the word tamay. 
You ever read the New Testament? You read about the man blind Bartimaeus, son of the unclean. Bartimaeus, Timaeus, over and over again, this is the term used explicitly to describe ritualistic uncleanness. And that's why this is what frustrates me. When you start seeing just point blank, flat out lies. But for someone that doesn't know Hebrew, this is what gets me. For someone that doesn't know Hebrew and they don't know Greek, you can have people like this roll into town, start telling you, telling you what toevah doesn't mean abomination. It's really only dealing with ritualistic uncleanness. It's not a matter of salvation. Don't worry about it. This is what gets to me. It's frustrating. We have got to go out and defend the faith. And a guy like Ray Boltz who doesn't know, he probably doesn't know Hebrew and stuff. Think about this. As a Christian, you're coming out, you're dealing with these emotions, and then you have Jonadab or people like this coming to you and say, ah, it's totally fine. You just don't understand the Hebrew. Man, that frustrates me. One thing I've learned over the last decade is when people start telling you, oh, well, you don't know the right translation. You don't have the right translation. I want to run from that person because one thing I can tell you over and over again, which we've already seen in this study, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, that's what she ran her platform on. We can't believe the Bible as written because the translation isn't legitimate. This is what she ran her platform on. Same thing with Thomas Jefferson. He was a deist. He did the exact same thing. They start messing with it. They start messing with your mind, psychologically telling you, well, you don't understand the Hebrew and we can't rely upon this because the translation is so bad. It's all garbage. Throw it along the side. Throw it away. It, it, it just it, it gets me hot. So this is why we're going through this. Now, he goes on to say this. Sodom and Gomorrah had nothing whatsoever to do with homosexuality, but rather with arrogance, idolatry, and society's bloodthirst for violence. Likewise, all verses, both in the Old and New Testaments, referring to these two cities, consistently state the same, without ever linking homosexuality in any way whatsoever. Really, go back and read the story. Read the story. Go back, start at Genesis 18, and go into 19. And what you will find, my, my daughter, eight years old, would come away with the plain reading of the text that the men that rolled into town, they had the two angels that came and stayed with Lot, the men gathered around for one purpose, to know them carnally. It was all about homosexuality, sexual depravity. That's exactly what it was about. The plainest reading, Hebrew or English, doesn't matter. That's exactly what it was about. And as far as to say that they're not linked directly in any way, and, and the Old Testament or neither the New Testament states it, well, let me impart this verse to you in the New Testament. Jude 1.7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. He's honing in on a particular type of sin that constitutes sexual immorality, homosexuality. This is what he's talking about. Gone after strange flesh. Are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And I could show you other passages, which we're going to look at one next week. I'm not going to show it this week. Point blank, flat out lies. What they have to rely upon is you've never read the Bible. And unfortunately, it's true in many circles. You wonder why they're gaining ground? is because the people don't know the word of God. Now listen to this last bit, which just will end on this because it just wraps everything up in a nice little bow. 
To misuse the Bible by quoting a mere handful of so-called clobber passages, what he's referring by this clobber passage is passages that are found like in Leviticus 18.22. Point blank say, you shall not lie with a male as with a female. It's an abomination. That's a clobber passage. Right in your face, it is an abomination. To misuse the Bible by quoting a mere handful of so-called clobber passages that do not actually state what they are commonly claimed to say is to lie about what Scripture affirms and to become a stumbling block to millions of homosexual people who yearn to have a personal relationship with Christ with guilt-free assurance. Inner peace and self-acceptance as he himself accepts them. What a statement. I mean, this blew my mind because I was like, oh, they just laid it all out on the table. The reality of it has just been laid out on the table. Because what it alludes to is that when we speak truth, we go to our neighbor, we speak truth, what happens? He tells us. Look at what he says. A stumbling block to millions of homosexual people. This is what we become when we deliver the truth in love. We become a stumbling block to the sin to the acceptance of the sin. What an awesome thing to know. This is wonderful. We need to do more of this. Because even they're realizing the power that the word possesses in its truest form. You will become a stumbling block for the evil one. That's who we want to be. Amen? And then, and then look at this, at this last part here. We're invading upon the fact of that they want to have a personal relationship with Yeshua, with Christ, with guilt-free assurance. Guilt-free assurance. That's what this is all about. They're severing the conviction of godly sorrow. God forbid we allow that to happen on our watch. That's why we need to be vocal about these things. Amen? We're going to end here today. And next week, this series is going to take a turn. Next week, this series is going to take a little turn. We're going to get into the last leg of the series, and yes, it is going to be intense. I'm going to be talking about some, some scary things. I mean, that's the reality of it, the stuff that is coming, the stuff that is already starting to unfold. Proof that all this time that I've been spending telling you the judgment of God, this nation is going to bear the judgment of God, I'm going to start delivering that. Shabbat Shalom.